Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. It's the first Monday in October, which means you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. We've got reviews, we've got interviews, we've got fine music, we've got everything you need to know about books for this month. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and Book Choice is sponsored by Exclusive Books. First up is a tasty snack of a review. Philippa Sheffitz tells us about food that loves you back. And I'm going to try and get the author's name right here. It's by Vercuel Amore, and it's published by Penguin Random House. At least I know how to get the publisher's name right. Food that loves you back. The catchy title refers to the quality of the food you choose to cook. When you love your food, it will love you back, writes Amaray Vercuil. She's passionate about cooking with fruits and vegetables in season, organic, free-range, and fresh-from-the-farm produce. No cooking method can improve the quality of vegetables. When you cook with ingredients that have had only a short journey from the producer to your kitchen. You'll get more intense flavors as well as more nutrients, and you'll be supporting sustainable farming. She quotes Max Lugavera, author of the best-selling Genius Foods. He includes research that shows Brussels sprouts have a very positive effect in detoxing your brain. Her daily eating plan makes the most of plant-based flavors and textures. Plant-based eating, she writes, is so much more than just putting vegetables or salads on a plate. It offers the opportunity to experiment with different colors, flavors, and textures and discover how one vegetable can be transformed into a multitude of nourishing and tasty meals. Amore worked as a food stylist and private chef until it came to an end with lockdown in the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. But she was proactive and used the time to produce the cookbook she never had the time to do before, one that focused on healthy eating. She set up a makeshift studio in her living room, studied food photography, and started cooking. What was first a digital cookbook is now a print edition, published by Penguin Random House. I love her strong, simple pics. Two charred whole red peppers on a white plate. Strips of roasted red peppers gleaming in a marinade. A swirl of pale creamy hummus. Overlapping circles of chickpea pancakes. Roast carrot sticks. Roasted cherry tomatoes on baking paper catching at the edges. A vegetable wellington in olive oil pastry. A bronze San Remo spinach tart using the same olive oil pastry. Thin slices of a wholesome seed and oat bread that is ingeniously gluten-free. A coconut and cinnamon bread that too is cleverly gluten-free. And a brilliant everything granola. The recipes are must-try. A red lentil and roast carrot dip. Moroccan spiced lentils served with roast butternut chunks. Roasting is Amore's favorite way of cooking vegetables. I love the idea of roasting a whole butternut for brindles baked in tomato sauce. Long, thin strips of brindles are fried and coiled in a baking dish to form a rose, 
being sourced between the strips. The chapters are organized in compatible groups of vegetables, lentils and chickpeas, broccoli, spinach and kale, butternut, carrots and sweet potatoes, eight sections on vegetables, plus one on breads and bakes, and a final one on mayo and sauces. Thanks, Philippa. I know I love food, and so if it loves me back, all the better, right? Beverly Rose Miller joins us next to delve into the life of Ethel Rosenberg. Ethel Rosenberg's story was a cruel Cold War tragedy. She remains the only American woman ever to be executed for a crime other than murder. Yet she was innocent, and that continues rightly to haunt us. She was sacrificed in the era of the 1950s anti-communist and anti-Semitic reign of terror by McCarthyism, not very different to the fear-mongering mob mentality that dominates parts of that country even today. This powerful book by Anna Seber covers the Rosenberg story with efficient, chilling clarity. Ethel was born in 1915 in an America full of new immigrants from Europe, many of them Jewish, many of them fleeing pogroms and dictatorships and yearning for a new world of equality and opportunity. It was not at all unusual in a world struggling to make sense of the First World War to look towards a different way of living, to support communist ideals, whether in Oxford or New York, was neither unusual at the time, nor importantly, was it illegal. Ethel was born into a poor home, full of ambition to better herself. She had an unkind mother who doted on her younger brother David, a favorite son who later perjured himself against Ethel to save his own wife from arrest after he had passed on classified documents to the Soviets. She adored her husband Julius and shared his idealism. But as a housewife consumed with caring for her two little sons, she was not a participant in his underground activities. Julius did in fact pass classified military material onto the Soviets along with David, and in fact hundreds of other like-minded Americans. Why? Well, their actions happened during World War II, when Russia was an ally fighting the Nazis, and many believed that such information should be shared amongst nations as a way of ensuring peace. Whether right or wrong, what they did was not in fact treason, for that is a crime only when secrets are passed on to an enemy nation. Let me ask you this question. If Julius had passed on secrets to a different ally, England, for example, do you think he would have been executed? The Rosenberg couple were known to be passionately in love. Ethel's devotion to Julius meant that despite a long imprisonment designed to put pressure on him, she would not betray him as she deeply believed he was innocent of treason, and knowing herself to be innocent, she utterly believed that she too would be freed. Much of the world was horrified at the sentence and execution of the two Rosenbergs in 1953, Julius first, and then immediately afterwards, Ethel. She was 37. Countries such as France protested. Unusual allies such as the Pope, Picasso and Einstein lobbied for her exoneration. Ethel Rosenberg was more than just a Cold War tragedy. She was taken from two grieving, much-loved sons aged 10 and 6 years old, who were then abandoned by family members who were afraid of guilt by association and sent to an orphanage. 
when it became clear that not even the highest officer in the United States, including the FBI's J. Edgar Hoover, thought she was guilty, but nevertheless thought her conviction would be a deterrent, it was too late to save her and restore her to her orphaned sons. You can pardon a prisoner, but no one can resurrect the innocent dead. She was a victim of a government terrified of showing weakness in the face of a frantic fear of communism at the height of the Cold War and which knowingly allowed this miscarriage of justice. She might as well have been burnt at the stake. I highly recommend Ethel Rosenberg, A Cold War Tragedy by Anna Seber.
That was Love is a Many Splendid Thing, sung by Cape Town crooner Harry Curtis. And you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, brought to you by Exclusive Books. John Hanks interviews Nicholas Ellenbuchen about a vet, three mares, and a hound named Max. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Nicholas Ellenbuchen to Book Choice, not to talk about his considerable experience as an actor and founder of Theatre for Africa, but to talk about his new book, which has just been published with the intriguing title A Vet, Three Mares and a Hound Named Max. Nicholas, is this your first book? It's my first full-length book. I've had a few uh, novellas um, in the tradition of my friend Alexander McCausmith. A novella was about my length. But with COVID, I had time to sit down and write a full novel. Well, I must say well done, because I've had the pleasure of reading it. And it's a fascinating story. It involves a Polish vet and how he moved three purebred Arab mares from Poland at the start of World War II to Rhodesia, as it was then. What struck me, though, is you write about horses with real passion and enthusiasm. Where did that come from? I grew up with horses. Horses were my everyday. Loved show jumping, did a bit of a hopeless dressage I'd like to think I wasn't I was dreadful and won a few steeplechase races so I I love horses I'm a bit scared of them now but I think they're the most noble of beasts well well said I think what um, also comes across to me is remarkably accurate accounts of veterinary matters and hence the title of the book A Vet and Three Mares but where did you pick that up from? I want to be a vet but I was hopeless at Latin, and at school we were told if you didn't pass Latin, you wouldn't, couldn't be a vet, so I abandoned that. But my best friend, I suppose, really, I have a number of vets, but Mike Cock and I spent a lot of time together, and of course I had to look after horses when I was small. That was every day, you know. And, uh, yeah, and the whole wildlife veterinary thing has been a big part of my life, thanks to John Hanks who I listened to on the radio when I was a teenager. (laughs) That makes me sound very old. Well, how come you look better than me? What's going on here? (laughs) You also write about Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, as it was then, with, if I may say so, real warmth and affection, with delightful portraits of some of the characters. I must ask you, are any of these based on people you met when you lived there? They are. I mean, they're out of time because this book is set during the war, war years, 39 to 45, and I wasn't born yet. But yes, they do. There was a Polish vet down the road who I never knew very well called Paul Vela, and He had three sensational mares, and he used to walk them down the old Gwanda Road with a beautiful borzoi. And Max, the dog in the story, is, of course, a borzoi, which are quite unsuitable for Africa. (laughs) It must have been very unusual when people first saw them. I tell you, we used to just stop and stare. I mean, he, they were immaculately turned out, dog, yes. horse, and vet. And um, they were very pretty mares, but uh, we were quite nervous of him, to be honest. <laughs> I can believe that. What I also found interesting is your daughter Amy has done the illustrations. Did you tell her what to do, or did she read the book first and then make her own choice? A bit of both. I mean, she grew up with what we call at bedtime Mac stories, and I... I would always tell them stories about Max the dog, and then 
they bullied me into writing the book to a degree. They said, you've got to write this for our children now because they will. And uh, Amy's grown up with them, but she's a bit of a bush lover. All my children love the bush. And she's a super-duper artist who's too nervous because it's not sort of weird and wonderful enough to be appealing to her friends, but she's in the art trade here. There were these little illustrations all the way through. Did she do the cover of the book? No, the cover of the book was done by a gentleman in Peter Maritzburg, who I've never met. I think his name is Anthony. I'm not sure. (laughs) But again, he's captured so much of the book in that one picture. Uh, The children had a lot of input. I mean, uh, the book wouldn't have happened without my son, Matt and Chess, supporting me to do it. Right. And um, my son Luke had a lot to do with it. You know, you never get away with anything on your own in my family. They're all very critical. They're theater people. (laughs) Now, their book has some very interesting accounts of how conservation of wildlife was very much in the lap at the time you wrote the book in the hunting fraternity. Tell me about your interest in conservation. Where did that come from? Dad. We spent a lot of time in the bush. He was chairman of the Hunters Association, which, believe it or not, was the founding body of National Park. So he was really a conservationist. He was just at a time when you ate venison. So we did a lot of shooting, but very, very, he was very strict. We were never allowed to shoot the wrong thing at the wrong time, and we couldn't shoot more than we put in the deep freeze and ate. He was a conservationist, weird, and he was a phenomenal shot. He never wounded or wasted. And I suppose my generation got the benefit of that because we we started to see national parks. We started to see biologists who started to look at species. You know, we we were the ones who benefited. And Zimbabwe produced some astounding conservationists. Absolutely. I think yeah. some of those people both of us have met over the years. Absolutely, and worked with, of course. Yes. Well, I must congratulate you on the book. It's a superb production. I'm going to give the title again. It's called A Vet, Three Mares, and a Hound Named Max. It's published by Footprint Press, and you can buy a copy for 295 rand. Nicholas, once again, thank you very much. What a privilege to see one of my heroes. <laughs> the title of this book has reminded me of the best-selling runaway hit, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse by Charlie Mackesy. I've heard it's fantastic. And it's interesting how titles that sound like this have now become popular. Leanne Voicey joins us to chat about a new children's book called The Girl with 21 Questions by Boy Tomelo Motupi, and it's illustrated by Subi Bossa. This book is available in both English and Koza. I get so excited about multilingual titles like this, especially ones for the little bookworms in our lives. And listen out for some special reviewers. The Girl with 21 Questions by Boitumelo Motupi is a children's book written in a crisp, smart voice. It gives a fresh take on introducing kids to the power of reading and knowledge gathering without preaching or being predictable. Translated into English and Sutu, it tells the story of Matalani, a curious little girl who questions everything and everyone around her. The irritation of her family, friends and teachers, caused by the constant why, who, where, what and how, forces Mati to find books which will feed her curiosity and thirst for knowledge, and along the way light a little fire inside everyone around her. The book is expertly illustrated by Subi Bossa, 
with artwork which is rich in detail, depicting many interesting things and concepts to take in and process on every page. I recently read The Girl with 21 Questions by Boitumelo Motupi to our Grade 2 ballet students at Zama Dance School, and this is what they had to say about it. Um, Matalangi's questions uh, are interesting because like, she didn't give up when people were irritated of her questions. She went to the library, got books to read, and made up her own stories, and people liked her stories. I love this book because I think Matalani had lots of questions and she read books. So at school I like reading books so I, I like going to the front and read to, the, to my class the books. That's why I like the book and I like going to the library and read books. Matalani's questions were interesting and they made you think a lot about what you could do in the future. Matelani questions are interesting and I think Matelani is trying to show us that reading is so nice and we must enjoy reading because reading can make your dreams come true and I love Matelani. Um, the, the map and the drawings are, are very colorful and they are interesting so that you can see the provinces and where Talani travels her stories. This book has beautiful pictures. Oh my word. Thank you, Leanne, and thank you to the grade two ballet students at the Zama Dance School. What expert reviewers you are. You've made me want to read this book immediately. Thank you. I give to you and you give to me
Cole Porter's award-winning song from the film High Society was sung by Eve Boswell. It's Monday at lunchtime and this is Fine Music Radio's Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And we still have so many great books for you before one o'clock. Like The Dig by John Preston. What did you think of it, Anthony Freejohn? The Dig by John Preston. From Penguin Books is a fictionalized account of an archaeological dig around Sutton Hoo House in Suffolk, England, shortly before the outbreak of the Second World War. Edith Pretty, a widow with a young son, Robert, had purchased the 213-hectare Sutton Hoo estate, including Sutton Hoo House. On the estate were 18 mounds, very likely burial sites dating back to the 5th century. Edith Pretty was fascinated by archaeology, and employed Basil Brown, a self-taught Suffolk archaeologist, to investigate them. The first digs in 1938 proved disappointing, and clearly showed they'd been looted many years previously, and nothing of any importance was uncovered. But when he started his dig on the largest mound in May 1939, he realized he had come across an amazing find, a piece of metal which he identified as a rivet used in the construction of ships hundreds of years ago. The wooden planking had long rotted away, leaving their impression in the soil, but by painstakingly uncovering all the rivets that had remained, he could reckon the ship to have been twenty-seven meters long. Much later, identified as a seventh-century Saxon ship, which may have been the last resting place of King Raedwald of East Anglia. But was there a burial chamber under the collapsed soil? Is the dig a mind-numbingly academic account of an archaeological dig, dull and boring? Not at all. On the contrary, 231 pages of a delightful, enchanting, easy read. In some ways, a detective story, uncovering clues, a bit of mystery thrown in, who had been buried in the mound, what treasures might be found. I enjoyed the social comment on the Times, Mr. Basil Brown, riding his bicycle all over the countryside, the snobbishness of the experts. After all, Basil Brown was self-taught. All in all, gentler times compared to the world we live in today, which has too much information and little time to absorb and think. What did Basil Brown and his small team uncover? An absolute treasure trove of artifacts, considered to be the greatest find ever discovered in the United Kingdom. Gold and jeweled items, which changed thinking about the so-called Dark Ages, the craftsmanship displayed on the items was of an incredibly high standard. Items were identified as having come from Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and garnets from as far away as Sri Lanka. Far from being the Dark Ages, 
the dig at Sutton Hoo clearly indicated a rich, sophisticated culture over a thousand years ago. The dig at Sutton Hoo has been described as one of the most important archaeological discoveries of all time. Go to Google and look at the beautiful photographs. Astounding. The ship burial treasure was presented to the nation by the owner, Edith Pretty. All the people in this delightful book were real people. Well written, easy to read, highly recommended. The Dig by John Preston from Penguin Books. Interestingly enough, there is a character in the latest smash hit novel Miss Benson's Beetle by Rachel Joyce named Enid Pretty. And she joins the lead character on a hunt through a jungle in the 1950s to find a fabled golden beetle. I can't help wondering if fictional Enid Pretty was in any way inspired by true life Edith Pretty. And this is why books are so remarkable. They really take us on such a mental journey. South African author Manda Lange's latest novel, The Lost Language of the Soul, has been hotly anticipated. Philip Todres chatted to the author about his new release from Picador, Africa. The Lost Language of the Soul by Manda Langa, published by Pan Macmillan, has recently come out, and I'm very, very fortunate to be speaking to the award-winning author himself, Manda Langa. Manda, coming of age is the way the book is often described, the coming of age of Joseph Mabasso in The Lost Language of the Soul. But I'm not entirely sure that I'm convinced that that is really the story you're telling, or if it isn't perhaps the story of the coming of age of a nation. Would you like to comment on that? <laughs> yes. Well, thanks for inviting me to speak, Philip. Joseph Mabasso's coming of age, of course, is a metaphor for quite a number of circumstances of coming of age of many, many situations in the book. For instance, it's the coming of age also of the political resolution in various parts of, of both Zambia and South Africa. Yes, well, I, what you know, alerted me to the fact, sure, the journey is an arduous and hazardous and traumatic one, but right near the beginning, Joseph's parents, and I think we need to mention him, Sabuza, who is South African, a freedom fighter, and mm -hmm. Mother Ishanda, who is Zambian. And right. they are living in Zambia, and presumably in the context of quite a lot of people the freedom fighters being based in, in Zambia, and when they have an argument and a fight, he believes that South Africa is going to be unlike Zambia. It'll be the road to freedom, and South Africa is going to be assured. The road to freedom is assured, where she is far more savvy in saying how unlikely it is that South Africa will be free of, what shall we call them, opportunists and shady characters. What is the word? Kazawalas. Kawalala. Kawalala. So... That sort of alerted me to the story you were beginning to tell. In fact, what is the soul that you're talking about? Is it the soul of Joseph? Is it the souls of all these people that make up the story? I think the soul that I wanted to relate to or that I allude to in the telling of this story is the soul of the people of Zambia, is the soul of the people of South Africa who are bonded together by links, bonds of both blood and circumstance. 
and the fact that, uh, and language, of course, the fact that in Zambia you find people that speak South African languages and who are not South Africans, who are Zambians. So there's a linguistic link there that, you know, superficially one was referring to. But I think at the end of the day, this real soul is the capacity of the different communities, different nationalities to come to terms with their shared destiny and how to deal with it and the fact that Zambians suffered immensely, horrendously, you know, in the years of both uh, Zimbabwe's struggle and South African struggle. And of course, it harbored Angolans, it harbored quite a number of nationalities who were involved in struggle. It is really a remarkable story because you also are dealing with the souls of the individuals that you portray so vividly in terms of the journey that Joseph Mabasa takes as a 14-year-old, and I'm going to call him a young man because he's hardly a teenager any longer, mm. and mm. the journey that you take us through, and eventually, I don't want to give away the entire story, but when he is, does in fact, be, is reunited with his mother, mm. what he has to come to terms with with his own soul and his mother's soul. I thought it was very mm. poignant that last towards the end as you her soul is scarred and mm. and his self self has changed so dramatically in terms of what he has experienced as a 14 year old dealing with betrayal with anarchy with killing with with murder mm. i mean it, it's a story that you tell and that's why i'm also going to go back to the language although you speak of the language and the languages that are being spoken the language of the book is quite extraordinary and i must compliment you on the sub lyricism you are able to achieve in a very, very fraught and stressful environment. Would you like to comment on that? Because I thought the writing was, and I say it not lightly, quite exquisite and quite poetic at times. And no, thanks. <laughs> and yet dealing well, with such... Yes. Mm. I think one thing we need to remember also is that uh, the year 14 is a very important year for many communities when it comes to the transition of, of a young man into adulthood. You know, 14 years old is when you get your, if you are Jewish, your bat mitzvah, and so on and so forth. And uh, in South Africa also, the age of initiation starts around that time. And uh, I deliberately had to peg that year because the person is still half-formed, really, when it comes to dealing with circumstances around them. Well, you certainly take us on a journey, which is quite amazing, and I'm not going to give away what that story is, but I think anyone mm. who does embark on the journey with you is going to be quite amazed and taken on a trip that will certainly change their experience of how they see things. So congratulations to you, Manda, I really mean it to taking us on a remarkable journey in the lost language of the soul. No, thank you so much, Philip.
You're listening to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with And I Love You So, composed by Don McLean and played by Dan Hill on the clarinet. I wonder if he was referring to books? We love them so. This show is proudly brought to you by Exclusive Books. On that note, we love having the team from Exclusive Books join us every month. And this month, we have a special treat as we're joined by Linda's team, Chantal, Matthew, Petunia, and Sam. These are the booksellers from Exclusive Books in Cavendish, which is one of my favorite branches. If ever you're not sure what to get, be sure to ask these book heroes. They really do know their stuff, as you'll hear. Hi, my name is Chantal, and today I'll be reviewing a book called The Reading List by Sarah Nisha Adams. And it is truly one of the most beautiful books I've read in a very long time and highly recommend it to anyone who loves books. The basic storyline is a reading list that was compiled by someone who felt that those books were the most impactful on their lives and wished to share it with others and help them get through difficult times or just to have company. And it also is a story about amazing, unlikely friendships that develop through books and this list specifically and community, hope in humanity again. It just reminds us how books are so important and impactful in everyone's lives at different times and how we should share that with others. Hi there, my name is Matthew and I'll be discussing A Narrow Door by Joanne Harris. It is a story revolving around Rebecca Buckfast, who is the first female head teacher at a school called St. Oswald's in Mulberry. It's a school which has in the past suffered from various scandals revolving around murders. Her main competition seems to be against a Roy Straitley, who was the previous headmaster, and their main competition seems to be about the integration of female students into the male-only population. It's very much a case of old versus new. Timeline does tend to alternate between 1989 and 2006, and the author uses the Greek mythological rivers as a very clever plotting device. It is a clever psychological thriller that is very much well worth reading. Hi, this is Petula and I'll be talking about The Poisoners by Imran Kavadia. From nerve agents to manufactured viruses, this book catalogues the region's history of toxic substances. The research takes us further back than the apartheid experiments, touching on the influences of the Cold War on the Southern African region, a political development and civil tensions and eventual unrest. Suspected poisonings weave a tangled web of palace intrigue in post-94 and asks a more sinister question regarding Black September 77. Charged with mystery and spine-chilling discovery, the poisoners commits to opening the dialogue of war crimes that may just have glued this democracy together. My name is Sam and I'll be reviewing Grown by Tiffany D. Jackson. I enjoy reading YA novels and this one did not disappoint. Enchanted Jones, an aspiring young singer, is spotted at an audition by the legendary R&B artist Corey Fields. He takes her under his wing but she soon learns that he has a controlling darker side and she finds herself in an abusive relationship with this man, the kind of relationship where you see those red flags popping up but you still question yourself and you truly believe that you did something to, to make him act that way and you keep second guessing yourself and she soon finds herself in a nightmare situation. It's a riveting mystery which is relative to our times, especially in the times of the Me Too movement and also all the gender-based violence that is going on at the moment. It takes a searing look at misogyny, rape culture and the vulnerability of young black girls. I think it's an explosive book that all young people must read. And now we're in for another treat as Beryl Achenberger chats to radio host Nancy Richards. 
Nancy has interviewed me about my book so many times. It's really lovely that now the tables have turned and now it's our turn to interview her. Nancy Richards, veteran journalist, broadcaster, podcaster and author, has just brought out the most wonderful legacy project book called The Skipper's Daughter. It took three decades to put together and is part memoir, part biography. When her mother, Big Nancy, joined her father, Captain Billy Brooks, on the maiden voyage of the SS Nail Sea Manor in 1938, she was only 16. It was an adventure and a voyage that sadly ended in tragedy, but was faithfully recorded through Nancy's journals and offers the readers a glimpse into life at sea as the world hovered on the brink of war. Hi, Nancy, and a very warm welcome to FMR Book Choice. Thank you so much for coming on today. Well, it's an absolute honour. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, The Skipper's Daughter is a very personal story, but how did it become more than just a legacy? Well, I don't know. I don't think I ever thought of it as a legacy. I mean, when we were kids growing up, it was just one of those stories that was in the cupboard that came out every now and again. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was one of those things. And, and even when in the recesses of my mind, I thought, oh, I really must write this story down one day. I don't think I ever thought of it as a legacy. It was only sort of later on when other family members were saying, are you ever going to do that book? You know, how, how's it coming along? And I thought, oh, yeah, I must really do it, because it's not just for me and not just for Big Nancy, but for the whole family, and I suppose it developed into a legacy. But it, it didn't start out that way. It was just one of those family stories. Mm-hmm. But what made Big Nancy finally unpack the story? Because as you said, it had been in the cupboard and sort of got hauled out every once in a while, but never the full story. What it, made Big in, Nancy it, give it well, to you? Well, she didn't, in fact. In fact, it really wasn't talked about very much because mm. it did end in tragedy. It was very dark. It sort of caused a bit of a rift between family members. And, and you know, her life went on and she did all sorts of other things. And, you know, she was 16. It kind of was forgotten. And I suppose, you know, the catalyst, and I say this in the book, the trigger, was when she and I happened to be on a plane at the same time. And I thought you know, really, come on, let's, let's hear this story now properly. Mm-hmm. And we were on a plane from Cape Town to Johannesburg, and I said, so what happened? And she told me, and I thought, oh, my word, you know, this is even more of a story than I thought it was. And that was when it started. That was when it sort of, got, you know, was made manifest in my mind, but also in hers, because following on from that, she actually sat down a couple of times and wrote letters. I'd sort of triggered something, and she said oh, gosh, no, you, now you've got me thinking. And she would sort of drift on. She was a bit of a letter writer, and she would get carried away and tell me all sorts of little details. And so it sort of unpacked slowly, to use your analogy. It was like a, a slowly unfolding, well, it was un- unpacking a suitcase, really, because I found that there were things buried away in little dark corners that she remembered. It, it, it was an extraordinary journey, an extraordinary voyage. Well, it took more than 30 years to write. <laughs> <laughs> No But, hurry, <laughs> No, no rush there. What finally pushed you into that? <laughs> What kept me so long? Well, it, it, I mean, absolutely, it was lockdown because it was one of these things. I had ah. all the bits and pieces <laughs> and I kept dipping into it and thinking, oh, gosh, I really must do this book. But there was never time. And I thought, oh, I, you know, really, there's never going to be time. And then I was sitting over lockdown one day and I thought, you know what? This is the moment. This is God given. Mm-hmm. So I sat down with all the bits and I commandeered a space in my husband's studio and just put it all out and I thought right now or never if it's not going to happen now it's never going to happen 
So that was when it began. So in fact, it took about, oh, that was May last year. So it took, oh dear, my sums are not very good, but it, in, in the end it took... About a year, yeah, 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 something like that to put together, yeah. What is absolutely wonderful, it's an exceptional testament to the power of letter writing because so many of those letters are included in the book and journal writing, and which are all very revealing. I think letter writing is something that we have lost the art of to a large extent. But you were able to get inside Nancy's head, and this was what I found very intriguing. How? Well, it wasn't so much that she was writing a journal. I mean, that's quite a sort of now expression, really. Isn't yes, it? sure. She was writing the ship's log. Of course. Because she was signed onto the ship as Captain's clerk, and her father was a bit of a stickler for, you've got to get this right. She'd done a secretarial course, and so typing was what she did. So she wrote the ship's log, which became... It wasn't exactly Dear Diary, but there were definitely sort of... As she eased into the journey, it became a little bit more... We're talking more freely about herself and her feelings and her thoughts. Not, mm-hmm. not so much her feelings, because she was very conscious of the fact that her father would be reading this, so she had to be a bit careful what she said. But she was very, she was very proper. Her spelling was very good. And she wrote a very, very careful diary until, until the tragedy stuck, and then things kind of fell apart. Well, you, you but, pulled it all so beautifully together, also with your own footnotes, and, and sadly we have now run out of time, and I would love to speak more about it, but The Skipper's Daughter is an absolutely brilliant book. Thank you, Nancy, so much for coming on air today. Thanks so much, Beryl. Lovely. What a day this has been What a rare mood I'm in Well, it's almost like being in love There's a smile on my face For the whole human race Well, it's almost like being in love All the music of life seems to be Like a bell that is ringing for me And from the way that I feel When that bell starts to peel I could swear I was falling Swear I was falling It's almost like being in love
When that veil starts to peel, I could swear I was falling. I swear I was falling. It's almost like being in love. Like Being in Love from Lerner and Lowe's musical Brigadoon, given a great jazz treatment by Cape Town's Gavin Minter. All the music in the show is carefully and cleverly selected by Rick Everett. Thank you, Rick. And, speaking of cleverly, Melvin Minard just finished The Echo Chamber by one of my favourite authors, John Boyne, published by Penguin Books. I love this book. It's really fun. Satire in this day and age of post-truth is a hard act. Irony, the satirist's sharpest weapon, has a hard time penetrating the paradoxical weave of today's social network that seems to hold good and bad, high and low, in a precariously fragile balance. Ethics, the dynamic charge of satire these days, are no more than political parlour games now. No winners, no losers. And yet, John Boyle, admired Irish writer of pleasant books that include the heart's invisible furies, and the acclaimed The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, has tackled the job of satire in his new book called The Echo Chamber. And, as could be expected, the root of his piercing humorous plot is the contemporary overloaded world of social media and its main characters. The celebs, real and invented, their acts, mishaps, and audiences they perform to. Boyne is a very smart storyteller, so expect to be drawn along in the narrative's absurdities, which even include delightful chapter-end soapy cliffhangers. There is perhaps even too much plot to bear. But the backstory to this fast-moving parody is even more fun. A 2019 novel for young readers, Boyne has written a substantial number of finely tuned books for the young, got him into Twitter trouble for what he wrote about a transgender character. Gender ganders and geese lay into him. So this is his revenge. A skilled novelist's strongest weapon, wicked words. So here's the plot, if that's the right word, of the echo chamber. First make a note of the characters' names and then check out who they are. The main family, going by the surname of Cleverly and living in a five-story Belgravia mansion, as they do, comprises George, a self-proclaimed natural treasure, as urbane television host, his wife Beverly, a socialite novelist whose books are ghostwritten, and three kids, Nelson, yes, named after our Madiba, with serious ID problems, Elizabeth, a make-believe punker and attacker uber troll, and the pretty Achilles, well named after the Greek god who loves himself and other gentlemen's money. Add to this a cast of extras. George's perhaps pregnant mistress, who happens to be Nelson's shrink, the daughter's dirty vegan boyfriend, Wilkes, and the charming sex machine, the Ukrainian pileup, who seems to have serviced just about everybody in the book. The plot is triggered when George mistakenly calls Nadia, transgendering from Aiden, a he, in a tweet, and a hell of a social media storm follows. And so he goes, a misanthropic melange of mishaps. Then, of course, there is the tortoise named Ustam Kamaliuk, 
He was supposed to be fed only crickets, but in the Cleverly's grand house, after dinner was the death of him. Why? Reason enough to read Boyle's 22nd book, a 420-pager of fun. The English-Irishness of Boyne's off-kilter humour and his witty zaniness in which colourful settings are driven by smash-grab dialogue turn short and longer chapters into filmic scenarios and pure visual delight for our readers. The Echo Chamber is way off Boyne's other books in story, style and urge, but just the satire that we need to deal with the ridiculous of, yes, the web of social media et al. Before we go, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a really exciting book project I'm busy with right now. We have been so excited to launch South Africa's first ever book cover design awards, rewarding the designers who create the gorgeous cover designs for the books we love so much. There are three prizes, fiction, non-fiction and Reader's Choice Award, and the winning designer in each category will win a 5,000 Rand cash prize. So, if you're a publisher, author or designer, in fact, even if there's just a local book cover you think deserves to win, anyone can enter a book, even you. Simply visit gbasbookcoverawards.com. I'm going to tell you that address again, gbasbookcoverawards.com. And if you'd like to help us judge the Reader's Choice cover winner in November, simply search for and join the Good Book Appreciation Society on Facebook. It's a book club with over 16,000 members. And that wraps up our show for October. Huge thanks to all our reviewers and authors and to Mwandi and Wesley for putting the show together. If you missed any of the reviews, the Book Choice podcast will be up on the FMR website shortly. Playing out with I Wish You Love, played by pianist Albie Lowe. And from all of us at Book Choice, until next month, we wish you love and great reads. was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. FMR.